As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Everyone will get out their Newtonian calculus today to look at that two-year yield. They'll go to logs. Michael McKee and I really, well, we really don't do that. Bramo doesn't really do that. But someone that can go to logs and look at the rates of change of our economy is Loretta Mester of the Cleveland Fed. She is definitive in mathematics out of Columbia and Princeton and joins our Michael McKee here at our world headquarters. Michael? Thank you very much, Tom, and we'd like to welcome Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester to our uh, viewers and listeners worldwide here on Bloomberg. Uh, Tom said you're the math expert. You, <laughs> you look at the ADP numbers, we might as well start with that because right. it's just out 145,000. I know there's questions about their methodology or what it means, but what do you take away from it? Well, we have to look at all the data. So that's a data point that we're going to look at. We're going to get the employer report on Friday. So there's just a lot of data coming in. And we're going to use that to assess not only where the economy has been, but where it's going. Because as you know, it's about where the economy is going that's really important for setting monetary policy. Well, that was one of the questions that they were just asking me in uh, uh, the surveillance uh, studio. How do you know what you're looking for when the data are in the rearview mirror? Well, you know, the data in the rearview mirror is important because it tells you something about where the economy is going. So you don't throw that data away, but you also have to do a lot of other kind of reconnaissance. So, you know, the nice thing about having Federal Reserve banks across the country is that we can talk to um, contacts in our districts, you know, whether it be labor market um, contacts or business contacts to really find out what's happening on the ground at the moment. And that information, anecdotal information, is very helpful as well. And then we do surveys and other kinds of more timely information. So all of that goes into sort of formulating monetary policy. So I think it's wrong to think like, oh, we're looking only in the rearview mirror at data that's from a month ago or two months ago. That data is actually helpful for looking at trends. And then we also uh, augment that with other data about what's really happening on the ground, on Main Street, for businesses that have to cope with this economy. Well, what's happening on Main Street? Yeah. Uh, it's it, kind of two parts. In general, what are you hearing? And then what are you hearing from bankers in your district about uh, credit quality? Right. 
So credit quality is still fine. Um, bankers are telling us that that isn't really a, a problem. It might have ticked up a, a tad, but it certainly is still low, very low by historical standards. So that isn't a, a focus now. Um, the bankers have, you know, struggled with retaining deposits during the March um, tensions in the banking industry, but that has stabilized since then. In terms of credit, in terms of credit um, standards, you know, they had already been tightening credit standards as interest rates went up. So they're continuing to do that. They're continuing to monitor, um, you know, their their customers. They're continuing to monitor going forward in terms of making sure that they're well positioned for the economy with higher interest rates. In terms of the businesses themselves, of course, they are preparing right for. I would say, some slowdown in the economy. But a lot of the firms are still telling us that their conditions are still pretty good. They're worried about the economy in general, and so they're being a little defensive now. Um, some pullback in some of their investment spending. But again, it doesn't feel like everyone thinks that we're going to have a deep recession. It's just they're trying to be more cautious so that they're well prepared for whatever happens in the economy in the future. Well, the recession argument that a lot of people are making sort of depends on the idea that the full weight of all of the cumulative weight of your rate increases hasn't hit the economy yet. Plus, we throw in the banking, maybe tightening credit standards a little more. Uh, are you worried about the second half of the year? Well, I do think that growth this year is going to be well below trend. And you're right. The banking tensions certainly, typically when you see that happening, you do see banks pull back. Um, on their credit standards and tightening, tight their, tighten their credit standards. We don't know right now either the duration of those effects from what happened in March or how strong those effects will be. So we do expect that to happen, but right now we're in that time where we're assessing, talking to the bankers, looking at things like the SLUCE, which is the uh, Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey, to get a really good sense of where bankers are. As I said, even before the March tensions in the industry, banking industry, you know, the banks were pulling back and tightening credit standards. And that's kind of normal. That's the normal flow of monetary policy tightening throughout the economy. That's one of the ways it gets pushed out into the economy. So, so that's fine. That's kind of what we are intending in terms of making sure that we can slow down demand so that we get a better balance between demand and supply and, and reduce those price pressures. And now we're assessing whether the tensions in the banking industry have augmented that. And that's part of what the evaluation will be as we go in to the next FOMC meeting in terms of calibrating monetary policy. Well, you're in New York. Uh, the, all the big trading desks are only a few blocks away from us. And they're calibrating recession right now and that you're going to be cutting rates not once, two or three times, but four times by next January. Uh, how do you process that view versus yours? Well, you know, we've seen periods where the markets have one view of what's going to happen in the economy and the Fed has another view. And, you know, we tr certainly take information from that. You know, we, we see what they're doing and we're saying, okay, that's their view of what's happening. We have our own forecast. We just put out forecasts at the last FOMC meeting. Um, and if you look at those, we did say that growth this year was going to be very much below um, trend growth. And so I think we see things a little bit differently in terms of what the appropriate monetary policy is given 
where the economy is and where it's going. We certainly are focused on inflation and making sure that inflation gets back down to 2% over time. Well, is the idea of four rate cuts in the next year crazy? Well, it certainly isn't my policy path. I mean, I think we're going to have to go a little bit higher from, from where we are, um, a little bit more, and then hold there for some time in order to make sure that inflation is on that sustainable downward path to 2%. That doesn't mean we're going to continue to raise rates until inflation gets back to 2%. We're going to be sort of calibrating in order to see that inflation is going to move down. And my own forecast is that it will take some time to get inflation back down. But I, you know, I think we're going to make some appreciable um, progress this year and then continue to make progress next year and then hit 2% in 2025. What's your trajectory for inflation? Uh, where can we end the year and how fast would we get there? Yeah, so I'm about three and three quarters percent um, by the end of this year continued progress next year, maybe two and three quarters, and then 2% in 2025. And I think that's a good progress. Um, but you got to remember, we've been at high inflation well over 2% for quite some time. And that's why it's imperative that we continue to make progress and that we continue on this path. Now, we're going to be judicious about it. We're not going to, you know, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. We're going to make sure that we're making good judgments along the way. But it is crucial that we get inflation back down in a timely way to 2%. Well, you're talking about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but the old adage is the Fed tightens until something breaks. What would you say the balance of risks is now between something breaking on the growth side and unemployment side and inflation? Yeah. Well, I'm hoping we don't tighten until th something breaks. I don't think that's the, the strategy that I would like to follow. I think we've got to be judicious about it and try to calibrate our policy in the, in the correct way. I mean, we've made a lot of progress in terms of where we started when we started raising rates. We were at zero, right? And we've come a long way. So we're making progress on getting to where we need to get to. And my own view is that we're going to have to go a little bit further, but we're certainly well on the way of where we need to get to. And then we hold for a while. And yes, we can recalibrate our policy if the economy evolves differently than we're anticipating. And that's the, the nature of monetary policymaking. You want to be able to take all the information in, set a policy path that is consistent with getting back to full employment, maximum employment, and price stability. And then if the economy evolves differently than you anticipate, then you might have to adjust your policy path. And you need to be open to that. And especially in a, in a situation like this where there is high uncertainty. There were high, high uncertainty in the economy before we had the tensions in the banking system. That tension in the banking system and the stresses in, the bank, in, those, in those banks has added more uncertainty. And so you've got to be willing to sort of take in more information, look at it, and reassess if, if need be in terms of where policy needs to get to. Well, you said we should do a little more. Uh, the consensus median dot was 5.1, which would be one more rate move. Right. Uh, are you in the group that was above that? Yeah. How far do you think well, we Well, I to go? see a little more um, inflation pressures than the median in the um, SEP from the December SEP. So I probably am a little bit higher than the median dot. But again, I'm open to making sure that we're setting policy to get inflation back down to 2%. So I'm open in terms of let's take in what the economy is telling us about where it's going. Let's make sure that we get inflation on that sustainable downward path. 
So I'm not, you know, we've made a lot of progress and I'm willing to sort of, let's take it in and look at where the economy's going. Listen. My own view is that we'll have to go above 5%, but exactly how much, precisely how much, and precisely how long it has to stay above, we've got to be open to allowing the economy to tell us. Is uh, rate increase on May 3rd a certainty basically locked in at this point? Too soon. Um, I heard the promo before. You're right. I'm going to tell you that we have a lot more data to get to. And um, we'll see as we get there what, what's happening in the economy. Again, the economy is going to tell us where it wants us to get to. Well, Loretta Mester says I'm right. And so that's a great place to stop the interview. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us today here in New York. And we'll look on May 3rd to see if I'm still right. <laughs> I'll send it back to you. Now, Michael McKee, thank you so much. We are here in our studios looking at markets on the move off that ADP report, maybe even off what we heard from Dr. Mester uh, as well. My major takeaway there, I heard elements of Draghi as Loretta Mester confidently looked out to 2025, a longer timeline than maybe what we would see for many. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. One of the great joys of speaking with Claudia Sam, yes, a former Fed economist and Sam Consulting and writing for Bloomberg Opinion, and always controversial. I got eight ways to go here, folks. And I'm going to go to the Sam you don't know, which is she voraciously reads top flight Fed research. Claudia Sam, you go to San Francisco and Adam Shapiro, and you say his mix of what is driving this inflation is something we need to focus on. And that is the part of inflation off of the plant pandemic that is supply-driven or supply-side. Explain that. I think a big mistake that we're making at this point is acting like we can use past relationships in the economy to tell us what to do. Right? The pandemic was extremely disruptive, and we see that across many of our peer countries. Set aside monetary policy, <clears throat> set aside fiscal policy, and I'm concerned as time passes that that gets pushed to the side, and that's why I go to Adam Shapiro's research. I think he is one of many who is carefully trying to yeah. figure out that supply, that demand. The theme that I'm seeing into the IMF and World Bank meetings in my conversation, Claudia, tomorrow with uh, Dr. Gorgieva at the IMF, mm -hmm. 
is that the analysis now, like I've never seen, is linking monetary policy with our fiscal debt and our fiscal dynamics as well. Can we meld together monetary and fiscal analysis, whether we agree or agree to disagree? There are definitely some connections. I, I'm not sure the ones that we're making in terms of financing the fiscal debt. I mean, that's, that is a direct effect of these interest rates going up so quickly. I have pushed for, and I think you're seeing some signs of it, particularly in Europe, understanding we cannot let the Fed go it alone on inflation. The tools they use are going to cause a lot of pain. And there are things that fiscal authorities can do. It's just we don't have a lot of practice at that. Claudia, have you been surprised by how resilient the economic data has been up until this point? I've been very thankful. I mean, the the Fed is trying to get a slow path back to inflation down. So no recession, no severe recession. That's where markets disagree with them. And the only way the Fed gets that done with the kind of rate increases they've had is if the consumers keep coming back. Right. And if the jobs is, remain there, even if it slows down, like we are starting from a position of strength that has never been the case going into one of these cycles. How high should the bar be, Claudia, for the Fed to cut rates, given that they still do have the issue of inflation very much front and center? I, again, we have this disagreement about what kind of recession, if any, we're faced. I think if we go into a severe recession and the Fed holds on to this, we must stay the course no matter what, that would be a big mistake. Uh, You know, but I take them at their word. I really do. They are going to keep at this until inflation is moving down 2%, whether I agree with that or not. Tell me about the speeds that we're, we're, we're with right now. Gita Gopinath at the IMF talks about this. About I think it's like a general policy, English, if you will, for Newtonian calculus. The rates of change right now, including the huge surge we saw in interest rates, has to be front and center. What are those speeds right now that we're seeing in interest rates as it folds into Fed policy? This is one uh, contention I have with how the Fed thinks about the interest rates. They're very focused on the level, like getting the inflation-adjusted Fed funds rate above. above And it's like, come on. Like, you raised interest rates so quickly. We know interest rate risk is there that if we don't learn any lesson from Silicon Valley Bank in terms of the interest rate risk and monetary policy, that is an absolutely missed opportunity. And as... Uh, Loretta Mester was saying, we see the effects in the standards, the lending standards. It is there. It's coming. The last place it shows up is inflation. Right. We know it's in train. I want to cite this carefully off of Gopinath's work. We'll be talking with Gita Gopinath here uh, next week at the IMF. Gita Gopinath talking about the speed effects that are out there. What would be the effect, Dr. Sam, of lower rates or a pause, dare I say? How about pause, pause, pause? Would our world fall apart? No. I I think it would give the world a chance to catch up with what the Fed has been doing. Uh, Jay Powell has been very clear. We have started a a disinflationary cycle. We know it's coming in housing, but that just is a lag. Just let everybody catch up. This is a speed issue. The Fed went really fast. There is an argument for it. 
just let it work, right? Have some faith in what you've done so far. And and that's what pushing harder, it could go to a very bad place. I can't say how controversial the tone is there from Dr. Sam within (laughs) economics now. She is just saying there's a school of thought. Would everyone just calm down, stop listening and watching Bloomberg surveillance and just slow down and breathe? That's out there. And analyze what exactly has happened to change the labor market really kind of fundamentally since the pandemic. Claudia, can you make sense of this? There was a recent study that came out that showed Americans are spending substantially less time working than they were pre-pandemic by about a half an hour, which doesn't sound like a lot. But this is adding to the constraints in the labor market. How much is the Fed taking into consideration some pretty profound structural changes when they look to what they need to see with respect to unemployment rates as well as wages? So not enough. But this is not a criticism of the Fed. Again, we are in some uncharted territory. And just because we get a study last week doesn't mean they were able to integrate it in the rate decision in January. Right. And this is there are a lot of pieces coming together, whether it's work from home, whether it's getting the retirement done. Right? There are just a lot going on. And I have a lot of concern that when they're doing the forecasting, those models mm-hmm. are based on past relationships, and they're not able to integrate what community members are telling them. I mean, I saw this. That's really hard to bring in in real time. It's really hard to bring research in. The bar is high to use these things in policymaking. Claudia, well, we have to leave it there. We're out of time, Claudia. But Dr. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, her work with the Fed. Uh, Claudia Sam, Sam Consulting. Joining us now is Gargi Chowdhury, the head of iShares Investment Strategy Americas at BlackRock. Gargi, wonderful to catch up with you and good to see you as always. Gargi, I think we all want to know just how much demand is there still for treasuries based on what you're seeing? Good morning, guys. It's great to be here. And a tremendous amount of demand is what I'm going to say. So just looking at ETF flows for the first quarter of the 74 odd billion that came into all ETFs, about 70 percent of that was in fixed income. And more specifically, what I thought at least was really interesting was that investors gravitated towards the highest quality parts of the fixed income market. So you were seeing investors move towards government bonds, towards treasuries, towards the very front end of the treasury curve, and then the belly. So the seven to 10 year, something like the IEF, which gives you exposure to the 10 year part of the curve, had its biggest Mm -hmm. inflow ever. So investors definitely want fixed income right. here. They want the highest quality fixed income and they want treasuries at these, uh, well, not great yields, but better yields than it was about a year ago. So, Gargi, within crisis and within fear, we need to find courage. What part of the <laughs> ETF world is, is the courage need to be applied? Where should we be investing away from our full faith and credit fears? Sure, John. You're absolutely right. I think investors need to stay invested. I think one thing we've learned, especially when we look at the price action in both January as well as March, where we wouldn't have necessarily expected the S&P to be up or the Nasdaq to be up as much as it was. So now where should investors go in this slightly volatile environment? We look at that in our second quarter outlook that we just came out with. Number one, think about quality in the equity markets and the fixed income markets. So within the equity market that looks at companies that have strong cash flows, high margins, and really have the ability to have strong balance sheets. So looking at quality as well as looking at growth companies 
not just tech, but all growth companies that are at, at a reasonable price. And that can be tech, something like an IXN, but also can be global energy companies like an IXC. So that's the equity side. And then on the fixed income side, you guys know this. I've talked about this on your show a bunch. We think that the new regime is one of you should be buying every backup in yields. I think we're in a generational opportunity for investors to get really high quality income in the fixed income markets. Today's yield levels, not fantastic. I think the Fed is not going to cut two and a half uh, times by the end of this year. But every time we get a backup, buy bonds, buy the front end, and when we get to about 4%, buy the ag. And Gargi, certainly index strategies work very well when you're talking about broad uh, bond indexes. But does index-based investing allow for the stock-specific type of analysis that you're talking about? Do you see investors starting to shift away from equity index strategies as they start to shift toward greater quality? It's a great question, Lisa. So I'd say that uh, obviously, I mean, this was a great month. Uh, March was a great month for inflows into QUAL quality tickers. And if we look at broad mutual funds as well as ETF uh, industries, I mean, there has been an outflow from mutual funds as such and mutual funds and ETFs when it comes to U.S. equity specifically. But I think the crux of your question is, you know, is there a role for both active as well as index investing for investors' portfolios? And the answer is absolutely yes. One of the things that I'm most passionate about is the fact that investors can add ETFs to their portfolios, iShares ETFs, hopefully in their portfolios. Active investors can do that to generate alpha in a really liquid manner in their portfolio. So yes, you can have your active allocations, but there is a role for ETFs, for liquidity, for access, for transparency as well. Agagi, just to pick up on some of the words you used, I think this is important. You called this a generational opportunity which implies mm-hmm. that maybe it doesn't stick around, that you have to get in now to pick up <laughs> yield. But then you said buy the front end, which made me think, well, okay, if you're only buying the front end, you're not really locking it in for very long. Gargi, which yeah. one is it? Is it a once-in-a-generation opportunity or something that's <laughs> going to stick around? So I really hope that it sticks around. But unfortunately, every time what we've seen is as soon as yields back up to about that 4% level, we have investors, both from sort of institutional investors that are pension funds, insurance companies, as well as retail investors, gravitate towards the ag, gravitate towards duration. So, you know, when we do get that back up, and I think we will most likely get a backup back to about 37 to 4% once some of this fear around the bank crisis has dissipated somewhat. Um, so f- I, I think that it's a generational opportunity when we get that back up. But for now, you should still be invested in fixed income. So for now, I think allocating to the front end makes a lot of sense. Gagi, thank you. Always enjoy catching up with you. Gagi Chowdhury there of BlackRock Absolutely. on the bond market. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, 
and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. The uncertainty in Washington is off the chart as well. We had a huge response to the attendance on Bloomberg surveillance a few days ago of Michael Zeldin to say he's a former federal prosecutor and at American University, Washington College of Law, barely describes his commitment not only to prosecutorial law, but to explaining it on TV. He's one of those people that comes on and is crystal clear. Let's go Law 101 here, sir. We did not see misdemeanors yesterday. All of the headlines today speak of felony. Explain the distinction for the former president of misdemeanor versus felony charges. A misdemeanor is something less serious than a felony. The misdemeanors in this case would have been the mere entry of false data on the books and records of the business. However, they couldn't directly charge that because that has a two-year statute of limitations, and this occurred longer than two years ago. So they had to figure out a way to make those misdemeanor business record false statements into a felony. And what they did was they said that that misdemeanor was undertaken for the purpose of promoting another crime, in this case, hiding from the people of New York the true intent of what Trump was doing, which they allege is to deprive the people of information that would have been relevant to their decision of who to vote for. Specifically, they paid three people, Stormy, Stormy Daniels, McDougal and a doorman money to suppress their stories so that the voting public wouldn't know what Trump was up to in this sort of misogynistic way prior to the election. We could, it's an interesting theory. We'll see how it plays out mm, in practice. We, we could talk an hour today, Michael, about this nuance. I'm going to go to what I witnessed yesterday in the silliness of microanalysis by non-pros like you of who held the door for whom. Did you see a normal process yesterday? Does it matter that we're analyzing who's holding the door for a given defendant? Not at all. In fact, uh, for a few minutes, I turned on the television and I heard that comment as well. And I thought, boy, they really are struggling to fill airtime because they expected this arraignment to take place more quickly than it did. That had nothing to do with anything of substance. The only thing that mattered yesterday was that Donald Trump, Donald Trump was charged with 34 felonies. He pleaded not guilty. They set a next court appearance in December. And between now and then, there'll be a whole host of motions filed by Trump's lawyers to try to either change the venue of this case and or to dismiss it on various legal theories. That's what's going to play out between now and December. But let's go to the media circus, Michael, because as a former federal prosecutor, how much do you have to factor that in to A, what you prosecute, and B, how you prosecute it, given a lot of interest in a given case? Well, you have to be very careful about that. Every individual defendant is entitled to a fair trial, and you don't want to poison the possibility of that through a media circus. Now, I think the prosecutor is going to be very circumspect about how they proceed. I think they're going to try to rein in their witnesses, particularly Michael Cohen, who's an ever-present presence on television, which I find surprising. But I think that the biggest problem is going to be, can Donald Trump 
follow the admonition of the judge to try to temper his, I guess, commentary on on the case. And yesterday at Mar-a-Lago, he seemed to have ignored what the judge said uh, on day one. As you see, Michael, how this is playing out in the media and how this is playing out politically with the Republican Party coalescing behind the former president, do you think that this case was a mistake by Alvin Bragg? Well, it depends on what you mean by mistake. If you're thinking, was this a mistake to be the first case, if there are going to be other cases against Donald Trump? Maybe. It's not the strongest case. If you're thinking, what about accountability? Well, the president did all the activities that are charged in this indictment while he was a private citizen, before he was even elected president. And most people in that circumstance would be charged with this crime. When you ask your guests as they come on for future uh, segments this morning, ask them if they were in their business and they entered falsely these types of records, would they fear being charged? I think the answer would be, of course, nobody would get away with that sort of business crimes in Manhattan. So it's accountability versus political strength of of the media and the courts and the public perception. And I I think I go with accountability. Well, Michael, what you described, though, was the legal art of turning a misdemeanor into a felony from a DA that likes to turn felonies into misdemeanors. So, Michael, is that not somewhat concerning to you? Well, you know, I I got a, a, a direct message from a friend of mine yesterday saying, She wished that he would be as tough on other types of crimes as he appears to be on Donald Trump and this type of crime. And I guess the point is fair enough. But it seems to me that if you believe that what the president did or the candidate did in order to win the presidency was a crime, then you bring that crime and you bring it for all it's worth, which is the felony charges. Michael, thanks for being with us today. Thoughtful stuff, as always. Michael's out in there of the American University, Washington College of Law, Tom. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.